Well, I invite you to 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to be putting all of the verses that we'll be looking at on the screen, but we'll be beginning in 1 Peter chapter 5. We normally have one passage that we focus upon, but today a topical Mother's Day sermon beginning at 1 Peter 5. And when we have a song like that just before the message, you all can weep in your seats and recover, and I have to get up and talk uh, right after that. But thank you, Anthony, and thanks to everyone. Our church has been blessed with a mix of people, young, old, married, single, those who are settled into family life, those who are recently married, those with Christian upbringing, those with no religious training, and on it goes. As we celebrate Mother's Day, that diversity is evident as well. Young moms with young children, older moms with older children, older moms with young children, single moms, married moms, those from a Christian upbringing, and those with no biblical training as they were growing up. But with all of these differences in the demographics of our moms, you all have at least one thing in common. When you become a mom, you entered uncharted territory. Now, since motherhood's been around from the beginning, how can any mom really be entering truly uncharted territory? Well, while it's true that for millennia mothers have reared children, no one has reared your child. Your child is absolutely unique. Each child has their own natural bent and tendencies and gifts and shortcomings. They each have different intellectual and social and physical abilities that you began discovering while they were yet in the womb, or if you've adopted, and I'm glad to say that we may have a number of adoptive families in our church, you began seeing those unique qualities as soon as you brought her home. Motherhood goes back to Eve, but no one yet has reared your child. And no one has reared your child in your situation. One of the things that some of you have learned about your precious little one is his unique challenges. Even though you know each child is unique, you still had a model in your head about what it was that you would expect. Like many of you, Kim and I prepared thoroughly for the birth of our first child. Perhaps even more than most, because we were each 32 when Lainey was born. So we had lots of time to read and consult and talk to each other. It didn't take long for me to realize that for all of our preparation, there were some things for which we were not ready. I still recall the first day we brought Lainey home from the hospital. It was February, and it was bitterly cold. And so I warmed up the car in the hospital parking lot for like 45 minutes. <laughs> By the time she and Kim got in, it was a sauna. But, you know, you can't take any chances that the little one might catch something. When we got home, we marveled at God's gift of life as we held her, we played with her, Kim fed her, friends and family visited, and we laughed and we wept for joy all of that blessed day. At about 10 o'clock that evening, we were bushed, especially Kim, and so we put our babe in her immaculately prepared room and crib. We said goodnight, shut the door, headed to our room where we would rest our grateful heads and hearts until morning. Kim just collapsed in the bed. She was so exhausted. 
But I wasn't quite to our bedroom when I heard something. And I'm thinking, what is that? It sounds like a baby crying. It's probably our baby crying. So I go in and she is crying. And I pick her up and I hold her and I try to console her and console her and she's still crying. My first instinct is to give her to Kim. But she's zonked and so I take the baby downstairs and I ask her what's the matter and she doesn't tell me. She just cries and cries and cries. I'm in our living room doing the baby dance. I'm singing to her and she cries louder when I do that. I tried everything for hours to entertain her and to get her to stop crying. A few things worked, but it was only temporarily. And I'm thinking to myself, what did they tell us in the books we read about this? Maybe I should call her pediatrician at 1 a.m. and find out why the baby's constantly crying. Instead, as many of you know, it was just a matter of endurance until we both finally zoned out in the wee hours of the morning. And over the next few days and weeks, I discovered that this baby is what was called high maintenance, (laughs) high need, colicky, and various other terms to describe a fussy baby. And so we would take her for rides in the car in the middle of the night. We would put her in her car seat and place it on the kitchen counter with water running to distract her. We would put the car seat on the clothes dryer and turn it on to give that vibration and perhaps she'll fall asleep. And for all of that trying and experimenting, we found that the baby really wanted one thing, her mother. I recall getting a note of congratulations when I returned to work, and it was from a guy that I had never met, because they had put out a notice company-wide in an email saying employee number 643 had a new arrival. And this guy said that he had two daughters that were five and three, and he said, quote, they won't notice you much at first, but after a few years, you'll be the center of their world. Well, I don't know about the center of their world, but I did become more important to them after they were each about two or three. Meanwhile, he was right. They didn't notice me much. We had Annie almost three years after Lainey, and it was pretty much the same, high maintenance, high need, colicky, fussy, For about two years. And so we had a good four year run in which, for the entire time, we had at least one baby who did not sleep when we wanted her to. It was exhausting for me, but it was especially so for Kim. And I've told Kim many times how much I learned about the love of God by watching her love and care and compassion and sacrifice and tenderness for our girls. She was sometimes criticized by others for babying them. Go figure. But she knew what her girls needed, and she did her best to provide it. Some of you have good babies, which I'm told means they sleep through the night. But others can relate to what I'm talking about, and many of you have much larger challenges than simply sleep patterns. I think of the several little ones in our church family who have had physical ailments from early on, some hospitalized with major surgery, others undergoing test after test after test, still not finding out what's wrong, eating disorders, various forms and degrees of autism, and on it goes. 
I've seen all of those different situations and many more, but one thing I've observed as constant among the mothers of our church, no matter your situation, you love those children more than your very life. You care for and nurture them and you work with them. You may want to pull your hair out, sometimes literally so. You feel a deep, deep sense of empathy with the struggles of your little one. And there's a very good reason that you do. It's a gift from God through you to them. Here's what the Bible says at the very beginning. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Made in the image of God means we reflect God's character back to Him. But we reflect that character as male and female. And there are certain characteristics of God that will be more vividly displayed in women than in men and vice versa. For example, women tend to display God's tenderness and compassion more clearly than men. And so the Bible sometimes compares God to those motherly traits. Through the prophet Isaiah, this is what the Lord says, As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. When Jesus walked the earth, he asked his people, his own people, the Jews and the nation of Israel, and he said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. God-given maternal instinct is a blessing to your children. The more intense your feelings, the more real your joy when you see the wonders of God's creative activity in the life of your little one. But that emotional intensity means not only overwhelming joy, but sometimes deep pain. And there can be pain in motherhood. Physically so, as seen in the process of giving birth, and emotionally, as sometimes all that you've done and sacrificed is not reciprocated. So I want to talk to our ladies today about the challenge of your very real emotional investment in those you love. I want to do it for the sake of those of you who are feeling that pain right now, but also for the sake of those who are in the process of raising your children. The difficult truth is we don't know how the process is going to turn out. The Bible says this in the book of Proverbs, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. But as I've told you in the past, a proverb is not to be treated as a law, a legal guarantee. It's called the book of Proverbs, for a reason, those are by their nature general truths. And it is generally true that if we honor Christ in the rearing of our children, He graciously honors that with children who rise up and call her blessed, in the words of Proverbs 31. But not always. And even so, whatever the outcome, the process will include times of distress and wondering and battling worry about what they're thinking and where they're heading. So I want to address our ladies, but really all of us today, regarding the truth that love shown to fallen people, including in our own families, is risky. And it can involve, it can involve difficulty and pain, whether to our children or our spouses, 
or friends or whomever. So let's pray now and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for the blessing of being able to worship you thus far in our time together. We thank you for teaching us in your word about your world and what has befallen it because of the fall and how sin affects and taints all things. And so, Lord, help us to, to see that in a clear-eyed way from your word today, but also to focus on the one who is our hope in the midst of the fallenness. We pray in his name, Jesus. Amen. So what should we do with the burdens that accompany accompany the genuine display of love? Well, we should do with them what we should do with all of our cares. 1 Peter 5 and verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on Him. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says, Cast all your anxiety on Him. The Greek verb that's translated cast means to throw open and is written in a tense indicating a decisive act on our part. The words, all of your anxiety, include all the difficulty that a believer who wants to live live godly in a fallen world must face. Another commentator says, we are to commit our whole cause to Him. If we suffer heavy trials, if we lose our friends, health, or property, if we have arduous and responsible duties to perform, if we feel that we have no strength and are in danger of being crushed by what's laid upon us, we may go and cast all upon the Lord That is, we may look to Him for grace and strength and feel assured that He will enable us to to sustain all that is laid upon us. Matthew Henry said, Throw your cares, which is so cutting and distracting, which wound your souls and pierce your hearts, throw those cares upon the wise and gracious providence of God. Trust in Him with a firm, composed mind, for He cares for you. This advice to cast all of your care, all your anxiety on the Lord is important for all of us, of course, not just women and mothers. We all have much that can be reason for anxiety in our lives. And the best of Christians are prone to labor under the burden of anxious and excessive care. The list of things that can be the source of anxiety are truly endless. We have personal cares, family cares, cares for the present, for the future, cares for ourselves, others, cares for God's church. But as it involves others, I say this in the outline that you should have received when you entered today. The greater the love, the deeper the hurt. Now, I'm speaking here of the emotional aspect of love. The deeper the emotion, the deeper the emotional commitment, then the greater the potential hurt if things don't go as they should. We see this in an episode in the life of the Lord Jesus. The shortest verse in the Bible is John 11.35 that simply says Jesus wept. But what was the occasion of the Lord Himself weeping? Well, it was the news of the death of His good friend Lazarus. The Bible says this, Jesus wept, and those with him said, see how he loved him. See how Jesus loved him, the intensity and emotion Jesus had for his friend as evidenced by his weeping. Now we have taught here for years rightly that love is first an emotion. Our culture teaches that it's not only first, but it's really completely emotion, 
And so we can fall in and out of love, for example. But when I teach that love is not to be equated with emotion, I try to use my words carefully. Love is not primarily or first an emotion. Love, in fact, is doing what's in in the best interest of another. But the Bible teaches you can make right choices, even sacrificial choices on behalf of others, and still not be acting in love. The Apostle Paul wrote, If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So clearly love is not only doing the right thing, even though it's primarily doing the right thing. But affection should follow. John Piper illustrates, he says, Picture me bringing a dozen roses home to my wife on our wedding anniversary. I hold them out to her at the door. She smiles and says, Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And suppose I lift my hand in a self-effacing gesture and I say, It's just doing my duty. <laughs> the physical pain of, of childbirth foreshadows the emotional pain a mother will experience through the lives of her children. The process of carrying and giving birth to a child creates what should be an unbreakable bond between mother and child. But we're told in Genesis chapter 3 in Scripture, as part of the consequences of the entrance of sin into God's otherwise good world, that one of those consequences is, in pain you will bring forth children. This involves the gestation period. It involves, after they're born, sickness and and. and even in the womb, kicking and primarily the the delivery, but there's also this profound bonding. And having gone through that pain, there's a rightful expectation of gratitude that should be returned by the child. Often it's given and lived out, but sometimes it's not, and there's severe pain. And perhaps it's not something that your child did, but something done to your child, and you feel for him or her and for yourself as well. When the angels announced the birth of the Lord Jesus to his mother Mary, they predicted this. A sword will pierce your soul. Mary, who bore this child in her body, she gave birth to this child, and she would see him brutalized and murdered, and it was as if a sword was going through her very heart. Her maternal instincts are to protect and nourish and tenderly care for the needs of her child. Those are natural, God-given affections that reflect the character of God. They are good and they should be encouraged, not suppressed. Just as an aside, it's one of the reasons that here at our church we have not been high on child-rearing methods that call on moms to kind of regiment their, their babies at a very early, early age, almost in a militaristic way, and hold down those motherly instincts when her child cries for her. I know there are all sorts of opinions about early childhood care and development, and you mothers have heard all the advice in the world, and everyone, of course, is an expert. Each set of parents has to decide on what method they'll use, but I do want to say this. Contrary to what some advocates claim, it is not at all clear that denying or suppressing that maternal instinct is, in their words, quote, God's way. Now, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, then don't worry about it. But if you do, and you have questions about why I say that, then then please let me know. For now, suffice it to say that God made women and mothers with particular strengths which generally we men do not have. The nurturing and caring and compassionate instinct is therefore good and should be encouraged. 
But it also means that ladies are more vulnerable to this greater sense of hurt and betrayal. I have noticed, because I am outnumbered in my home with three women, and I've noticed that my girls and my wife have an empathy that allows them to almost literally feel the pain of others. And I saw that in the life of my own mother, who was deeply hurt as a mother. She loved and she gave and she gave, and very often it was not reciprocated. I saw her cry and cry. I tried to console her, but we men just can't understand the depth of feeling of a mother. And as a result, some give up on love to avoid the hurt. It's just too painful, so why should I risk it? They reason. And sometimes this pain is to some extent self-inflicted if we're honest. And we as sinners before our gracious God must take it to Him in the confidence that in Christ He forgives rather than harboring it to our own detriment. If you've seen things in which you failed your children by not supplying what they needed or not being there for them, then it's in the past and it can be placed in the past, but you must confess these self-inflicted wounds to God and to those offended But often those wounds are other-inflicted, inflicted by others. And there's there's nothing that you have in your power to do about that. You have to, as I'm going to emphasize in a bit, relinquish control. You've heard me talk over the years about our circle of concern and our circle of responsibility. And so just picture two circles, one outer circle that you label the circle of concern, And that includes all of the things that are going on in your life, but in the larger world that you're concerned about. Things you read about in the news, world hunger, what's happening in Ukraine, all of that. Things we're we're concerned about. But then there's your, inside of that, circle of responsibility. And God has only given you some things that He's assigned to you. It's not all that other stuff. And there are things within your own life that you can be concerned about, and indeed are, but you're not responsible for the outcome because you cannot make it happen. The truth is, I'm not responsible for all that I'm concerned about. And I'm concerned, and all parents are, at the highest level about what happens with our children. And we have responsibility as far as it goes, but ultimately it's God's responsibility on how it turns out, and so I cast my care upon the Lord. The greater the love, the deeper the hurt. Secondly, the greater the goal, the deeper the disappointment. We have these children, these God-given gifts, and we see the possibilities. We share these with our spouse if, if, if we're married. We share them with our children. We try to move them in a good and godly direction. But the greater the goal, the greater disappointment when it doesn't happen as we dreamed. And so some, like giving up on love, they give up on goals. But the answer is to do this, hold our dreams with a loose grip. One family counselor said that when he prays to God, he prays with his palms up and his hands open for this reason. He's saying, these things, God, that I'm requesting of you, I don't hold on to with a fist. I hold them with an open hand for you to do as you see fit. Some compensate. Many parents are in a phase of compensation for some disappointment. It's not turned out how I dreamed it would. Some difficulty, perhaps no fault of their own. 
I'm disappointed for my children and for myself. And so I buy and I excuse because things have not gone as I thought they might. Again, my dear mom did that. With all of the hurt, she would grab onto any ray of hope that she could find in the lives of her children. I'm convinced that this is one of the reasons she would often do this in my, in my early adulthood. That she had had much disappointment in rearing her children, and so she would look to what God was doing in my life. Nothing about me. It's God's grace entirely. But she was looking to highlight that. And whenever we were in the company of strangers, she would say to them, my son's a minister. She wanted people to know that. My son's a minister. I can't tell you how many times she would bring me over and introduce me to people I didn't know. She'd say, Kenny, come over here. And then she'd say, my son's a minister. We have expectations. We have dreams. We have goals. But hear this. Expectations minus reality equals trouble. You see, we can have expectations, but then there's reality. And there's often a gap between those. And many people live their lives trying to deal with that gap. What they hoped would happen, what they expected would happen, that didn't. Almost always there is that gap. Things that we've done or what others have kept us from achieving and not being able to accomplish what we expected. And the answer is not to give up on goals, but rather to have a God-centered perspective. Hold those goals loosely. The greater the love, the deeper the hurt. The greater the goal, the deeper the disappointment. And the greater the regret, the deeper the damage. Now when I say greater here, I'm saying the nature of the regret may be significant. It may be large. Perhaps I've come to the realization that I wasn't there for my children at all. I pursued my own interests, etc. It may be great in terms of some large, significant, great impact. But it may be great for this reason. You've made it huge in your own mind. You may just wish that you had done better. It may not be huge, but if you had it to do over again, you'd do it differently. But it's become great in that though it's relatively small, over a long period it's festered, And so it does damage. And damage to whom? Well, it does damage to others because it can debilitate you as you mull it over and over. And of course, it does damage to you as you do that. The Bible teaches if we do not deal with our issues, it can develop a root of bitterness. It can even cause physical problems. When King David committed grievous sin before the Lord, And he confessed that sin in Psalm 51. Psalm 32 tells us what it was like for him before he came to that point of confession. He says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. So ladies, as we deal with regret, whether small over a long period or large things that we've done wrong, we should avail ourselves of confessing unbelief in two ways. One is we can easily fall into an unbelief in failing to believe that God will forgive. I've met many people who say, I've asked God to forgive me, and I ask Him to forgive me, and I ask Him to forgive me. And then I say, well, then ask Him to forgive you of the unbelief of believing that He forgave you. (laughs) You know how many times you have to ask forgiveness? Once. Not over and over. 
And we often have an unbelief in God's goodness that a good God can repair what we have broken and what others have broken. We must trust in the goodness and the wisdom of God when matters are out of our responsibility and now they're simply in the realm of our concern. And we can turn our concerns over to God. We give the hurt and the disappointment and the regret to Jesus. Now, how do I do that? With regard to this great love mothers have for their children, remember what 1 Peter 5 says, cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. So I'd like to conclude with some application of how you actually give it all to Jesus as I have in your outline. It means remembering that Jesus loves infinitely more than we do. As you think about, ladies, the pain that you have felt or are feeling, that's because you've been designed this way by God. Then think about how the love of God is infinitely greater than any love we fallen humans can have for anyone. His love is infinitely greater than what we have. He loves that child. He loves that wayward, struggling child. As you give to Jesus, you are professing your belief that the one who came to earth and gave his life on the cross has demonstrated a depth of love to whom I can entrust the lives of my loved ones. And so the Bible speaks of how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Give it to Jesus who loves them more than you do. And to Jesus who empathizes completely with us. Hebrews 4 says famously, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. We have disappointments because we had great goals that are not realized. Jesus knows of people not going the way that he designed. And so he can sympathize like one musical instrument to another. I'm not a musician, but I'm told that instruments that are in tune to one another in the same room can display sympathetic resonance. If you hold down the sustain pedal on a piano, which releases the strings to vibrate freely, any instrument nearby playing a tone that's matched by one of the piano strings will cause that string to vibrate in sympathy. Jesus not only then knows our issues intellectually, he has felt them emotionally. And the second major point in your outline is that great goals yield great disappointment. Maybe your child has not turned out as you thought. But perhaps we should reconsider, hear this now, those goals and whether they ever had to be set or met in the first place. You see, parents, it's easy for us to create good goals but sometimes there are goals for our children and maybe not God's. We need to be careful that we do not hold our children to artificial standards of our own making and instead focus on the fact that Jesus met the most important goals for them, spiritual goals that can unite them with God. What they need most is not some goal of our creation, but to be accepted by a holy God in the person and work of Jesus. I encourage you to remember, ladies, that Jesus loves more and better than we. He empathizes completely with us and he redeems our regrets.
All that I talked about earlier, that you've done or others have done to you or your children and you regret, it weighs on you, of course. Jesus redeems that. Famously in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. But notice the all things there. When you read further down in Romans chapter 8, when too often we don't do that, it gives actually a list of the kinds of things that God works for good. And they're all dire. They're all difficult things that this good and sovereign God works for good. So give to Jesus, believing that he can and does redeem our regret. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Your worry, your anxiety, your regret, throw on him. Now I know some of you are thinking, listen, I've been carrying this around and I can't tell you how many times I've thrown it on him. So why isn't it working for some of you? It's because when you think you're casting it all on Jesus, in fact, you've still got it. And if you've still got it, you haven't given it to him. How can we avoid giving it to him, but in fact still holding on? Well, when you give it to Jesus, be very specific. This is what I'm giving to you, Lord. I'm giving this entire situation to you that is outside now of my ability. And everything is within, within yours. You are not saying this. This is what many of us do when we think we're giving it to Jesus. I can't get it there, so I'm giving it to you to get it where I want. Or, I messed it up, so please fix it as I want it to be fixed. Casting all on Him requires we, hear this, relinquish the issue and control of the issue. We say to Him, I trust you and I give this fully to you to work out in your goodness and your grace as you see fit. I trust you fully with this. It has not gone as I had planned or expected or wanted, but I give you the issue and control. Failure to do that is why it's not working for some of you. The Bible says that there are times when we ask but do not receive because we tell God how we want it to turn out. The book of James, we are told, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You're still in charge. You're still tell, telling God what to do. And so ask yourself, have I given not only the issue to him, but also control of the issue? Instead of handing it over to him to fix as we would like, cast it on him and don't hold on any longer. He has the control. And so, ladies, on this Mother's Day, I remind you that as God designed women, by his design, you suffer because you care. But thanks be to God, Jesus heals because he cares. Now, we're going to bow and we're going to thank God for that. And as we do, I want to make sure that everyone in this room has an opportunity to know this Jesus who does that kind of work. He heals because he cares. And what does that mean? It means realizing who you are, realizing that you are a sinner, 
recognizing that Jesus Christ did the work that you couldn't do for yourself by dying on the cross, paying the penalty for your sin. Repent. Lord, I give my life to you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to go your way, not my way. That's what repentance means, a change of mind that leads to a change of life, and you receive Jesus Christ into your life. So as we bow and pray now, you have the opportunity to do that. Man, woman, child, any of you here who do not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, acknowledge that you are a sinner. Acknowledge that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin. Give your life to Him to follow Him as He teaches you in the days and years ahead. And the Bible says, He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. Father, we thank You for this day, the Lord's Day. Representing the first day of the week, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we gather as Your people, confident that we serve a risen Savior who's in the world today. We look forward to your blessed return. In the meantime, Lord, as we seek to live for you in a fallen world, we thank you for the assignments that you've given us, the roles that you have given us to play. And Lord, we mine your word to glean its precepts and its principles so that we carry out those roles in a way that's accepting and acceptable and honoring to you. Today we think of the blessed role of being parents, specifically mothers, and I thank you for the dear ladies who have given their hearts and their, their souls for the well-being of their children. But we acknowledge, Lord, our ultimate helplessness. Spiritually, we cannot make happen what we desire. And so, Lord, we ask you to do what only you can do and to use our efforts in the lives of our children. I pray for my sisters that they will see you as the healer. They will see you as the sovereign God who can do the healing, and that they will indeed cast all their anxiety upon you. Grant us all, Lord, we ask, joys in the journey. Thank you for that. But Lord, in a fallen world, we have to deal with these issues as well. Help us to do it in a way that sees you truly for who you are and honors you for what you do. And as a result of this, Lord, may this family of families be a place that honors the Lord Jesus Christ in the way we rear our children, in the way we look to you to see them come to you and honor you. We will give you the glory and the praise because it belongs to you. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.